Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi, everyone. I'm Sean Callahan, And hey, everybody. I'm Mark Shank. Uh, your turn in the chair this week, Sean, to tell the story. And uh, I just want to do a quick check before we start. Is this a bicycle-related story? You'll be pleased to know we are not doing a bicycle story this time around. So, right. Bit of variety, good. bit of variety thrown in. Yeah, who'd have thought that there were that many bicycle stories out there? <laughs> um, no, this one comes from a totally different place altogether. So we're talking about California. We're talking really uh, in the 70s to start with, but I have a question for you before we get started. Do you remember those arcade games that you go down to, you know, the, you know, the pub or even, you know, sort of to a takeaway or, or the university refectory uh, and play things like Space Invaders and Pac-Man and was that something that uh, you ever got involved in, Mark? Yeah, I, I do confess. I was uh, addicted to Space Invaders. There was a Space Invaders uh, uh, game at the, at the refectory at the university, and I held the, uh, the high score for Space Invaders for a lot of the time, a lot of the three years that I was, I was at uni. And I remember the console. It was taller than I was. You know, it was a stand-up console. It was taller yeah, than I was. It was, right. uh, it was uh, you know, two-thirds of a metre wide. Um, yeah, there were a couple of basic controls. They were significant machines, right, weren't they? And yeah. I remember um, um, they were so popular that, you know, the manufacturers would get calls from, you know, places like the refectory complaining that there was something wrong with the machines. And when their uh, support people would go out and take a look, the problem was they were jam-packed full of coins. That was the thing that was the problem. Couldn't fit any more coins into the into those machines. So Atari came on, came about really at that time where those arcade games were very popular, and they sort of asked themselves the question. They'd already had a big hit with Pong. I don't know if you remember Pong. You know that little table. Oh yeah, game, Just, right. Yeah, such a basic game. One but, pixel moving around with a couple of paddles. Yep, yeah, that was it, and it was. Again, you know, uh, people were just amazed that you could just hook up a console, a little Atari console to your TV and turn your TV into a computer game, right? So all of a sudden, this was available to you. I think adults didn't really get it, but the kids got it 100%. And Atari just started to get more and more sophisticated. They were building smarter and smarter games and they were just having enormous success. I mean, they ended up at, in, by the early 80s, they were like the fastest growing business in the history of the US, right? So you think about all the other amazing companies that had happened in the US before then, this was the, now the fastest growing company in their whole history. Um, they were making billions of dollars a year. And, and by the early 80s, they had sort of cottoned on to the fact that people you know, of course, were in love with the big Hollywood hits, the big hits like Indiana Jones. And they thought, okay, why don't we create a game that goes with the actual movie? So in this case with Indiana Jones, they had a, um, a programmer who was sort of like their rock god, if you like, in, uh, in Atari. Uh, he was a guy called Howard Scott Warshaw. And Howard Scott Warshaw, I guess he was best known back then for a game that he did called Yars Revenge. And it was, it was groundbreaking because he did a whole bunch of new things in it. He created a, sort of a richer sound palette with that game. He, he did the first full screen explosion scene on, an, you know, on a, 
on an Atari game. Uh, so he was, he was really pushing the boundaries and everyone knew that this guy was just could do anything, right? Well, he did the Indiana Jones game and he got so into it that he would walk around the halls of Atari dressed as Indiana Jones, right? This guy... Not at all pretentious then. No, no, no. I mean, he <laughs> did have a, a high sense of confidence in himself, I think. But, of course, after Spielberg did Indiana Jones, he followed it up with E.T., the extraterrestrial. And, of course, they wanted to do a game associated with it. And they went to Howard Scott Warshaw uh, to do it. Now, the thing is, I mean, at that time, it was about making sure the game came out at the same time as the movie, which would typically come out at Christmas time. And Howard got the call from the CEO of Atari and he said, this never happened. He never, ever got a call from the senior folk in Atari, but this case he did. And they said, we want you to build this game, Howard, but we've only got five weeks to build it. Can you do it? And Howard being the confident lad that he was said, absolutely. I will nail it. And so that's what he did. He, he got down, he started work on it, and he just worked on it more or less day in, day out. Um, and at the end of the five weeks, he delivered the new game, the extraterrestrial game. So Atari just thought he was wonderful. They had a big town hall meeting, got everyone there to congratulate the, the great work that he had done to get this game out in time. They, they produced millions of cartridges uh, of this game, got them out to all the stores and Christmas came along and all the kids were waiting for their ET game. They would open up the game, pop it into their console, start up playing and immediately they knew something was wrong. The game didn't make any sense. It was, I guess, confusing for them. They didn't know where they were. They were, they were quite disoriented. Now, it's important that computer games have frustration in them because when you're, when you're frustrated by something, it just means usually you need some new skills. And when you get those skills, you feel completely satisfied, right? That's part of the game, you know, sort of playing experience. But with this game, it just had all these weird things in it that just didn't make any sense for the kids. And they just stopped playing the game. And the word got out. And next thing you know, Sales went from okay, because of course the parents were buying the game because the kids were nagging them to do it, to a point where no one was buying the game. And at the same time, Atari had more or less also licensed a whole bunch of other game makers to create games. And they weren't really keeping an eye on the quality of those games as, games as well. So there was this growing feeling that Atari made rubbish games. Anyway there was a sort of a loophole that caused them a lot of pain. And that is the distributors who didn't sell the games could actually bring their games back to Atari, just more or less say, here you go and get a full refund. So there was millions of cartridges came back to Atari and in the end it killed the company. And they were so embarrassed actually by, by this whole thing was that Atari uh, took all the cartridges that were brought back to them um, and they went, took them all out into the desert and dug a deep hole and poured all those cartridges and filled in that hole. That's how, that's embarrassed they were. Um, 
anyway, not only did Atari die, but the industry, so Atari made up something like 75% of the industry, the industry in the US died. For about four years, not a single game was made uh, in that sort of 83 to 86 uh, period. And it wasn't until Nintendo came along from Japan to create new games that a new wave of game making started to occur and the the industry started to build up again. Um, Anyway, I think um, it was interesting. I listened to a an interview uh, featuring Howard Scott Warshaw, where he went out in 2016 out into the desert with a group of uh, people who wanted to sort of do an archaeological dig to see if they could find those cartridges, which were, you know, buried back in the day. And they did, they found them after about six hours of, you know, sort of looking around and digging, they started to unearth those old ET uh, extraterrestrial Atari cartridges. So there you go. What quality can do to kill not only a company, but an industry. Wow. Um, I hope they did not dig up two of the, too many of those cartridges. So it's not like there's uh, a big, uh, a big call for them these days. Well, I think I heard this uh, story actually from the, uh, there's a podcast that the Smithsonian Institute uh, puts on called side door. And I think a lot of those cartridges, they ended up back in the Smithsonian as a sort of a cultural, um, I don't know, memento of that period. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. They live on. You could probably go and see them at one of the museums in the Smithsonian. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, But anyway, about the story, what do you reckon, Mark? What what can we do to make that an even better story? What, What springs to your mind? Well, I guess there's, there's a lot of moving parts in that story. And, and so, I don't know, how would that story be simplified? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I would probably, if I was to simplify it, I'd drop off the arcade game sort of prelude to the story. Of course, that was a bit that I really liked, Sean, because, you know, that took me back to those uh, Space Invader days. Well, that's right. So, you know, it's it got a nostalgia element to it, uh, which people always enjoy. But it would simplify the story. You could just talk about it from, uh, from the company's perspective. You know, there was this game-making company called Atari. And even telling that would remind people of their experiences, you know, having yeah. the Atari games. Uh, people, a lot of people would remember that. Um, so and another thing is what uh, the, the, the five weeks. How did they end up with the five weeks? That, that, that didn't come out. That was the question, and, right. Yeah. Because yeah. so, they were... What had actually happened, and I didn't say this in the story, what had actually happened, it took them a while to negotiate the license agreement with Spielberg um, to get, obviously, everything in place so that they could create the game. And so it burnt a whole bunch of time. And then they really wanted to get that game out at Christmas time with, with the movie. And so it just came down to the fact they only had five weeks. Now, and so, but this, that was a new thing, wasn't it? Because with the, uh, the Indiana Jones one, they yeah. didn't, they, they didn't release the game at the same time as the movie. They released that they, they actually, the movie was success and then they made a game and people went, I love yeah, it. Yeah, Look, I'm not too sure, but what I didn't say, which is another important element of that story is up until then, it, it would take them six to eight months to develop a game. Right. That's, right. That is. That's an important uh, bit of information. So I've, I missed that. 
And you're right, this story has a lot of moving parts to really understand it. It's almost like a case study um, of failure. And, and so you need to understand that this guy, you know, that Howard Scott Warshaw was more or less committing to something that had never, ever, not even remotely closely been done before, right? So, you know, you had the, the hubris from the developer who's sort of going, yeah, hey, I'm so good, I can do this. Um, because he didn't hesitate. And when he was interviewed on that podcast, he was saying, yeah, I didn't even occur to him that he couldn't do it, right? Yeah. And then on the other side, you've got the executives who are just pushing hard to get the dollars in the door and they need a product by Christmas. Well, they see this enormous commercial opportunity to release the movie at the same, or the, the game at the same time as the movie and they don't want to miss that commercial opportunity. No, that's right. Exactly. So for them, it's just like, we need it done. Um, yep. Howard, you could do it. We know you can do it. And he, and he pulls through for them. But unfortunately, he creates a, a poor quality experience for the gamers. So, yeah. yeah, it's like they, they reached an important turning point. So in terms of, I don't know, in terms of, of, of simplification, the, um, they, they were the progression from Pong, a really, really simple game. And, uh, but people loved it. And they got better and better and better. And it was like, no matter what they did, they sold more and they got bigger and now were billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. maybe they're, they're thinking, no matter what we do, we're on a we're on a roll here. I think there's a lot of that. It was probably a little bit about um, you know sort of a similar feeling you would probably get in if you're in uh, Kodak in the in the year before they you know ex, you know imploded um, you know where they felt they could do no wrong right no matter what they put their hand to they made good money out of it. Mm. So I think that there's something there about now this comes down now down to the the meaning of the story and the, um, you know, the point you could draw out of it. But I think that was part of it. So talking about how it can make the story even better, I think that some simplification would, would help because it's difficult to tell in, it, in, its, uh, in its form because you need to make a lot of points about the, you know, the six to 12 months, the five weeks, um, the growth. But I reckon that makes it... it if you can include it, if you can, if you can nail those points. And I reckon I could in a, in a couple of tellings of this story, it would make for a very interesting, you know, twists and turns. It's a, you know how we talk about it's important to have data in your stories. Well, this story is got a lot of, well, has a lot of data, but it makes the story super plausible and interesting for the, for the listener, I think. So I don't think you'd want to simplify it to the fact that, to the point where you just sort of say, you know, there was this company that grew really fast and then they, they created a, a dodgy game and they, they died. And they failed. Yeah, they that, failed, you know. Like, <laughs> that's gone way too far. That's gone too far. But you, there is, I, I agree there is some simplification. Would, it would benefit from simplification, but you don't want to overdo that. Um, I think it's, personally, I think, having the story sort of revolve around the developer, you know, Howard Scott Warshaw is actually a useful thing. Now adding, you know, the fact that he did this, this game called Yars Revenge and, you know, I suppose it does give you a sense of just how good he was and sort of like how leading he was in his um, capabilities. 
Yeah, and, so. and the walking around dressed as Indiana Jones gives some insight into his character as well. Yeah, a little bit, doesn't it? You yeah. Know, the guy was a big personality by the sounds of things. So, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not too sure I'd oversimplify, but, yeah, I think, it's trying to, I think it's trying to just make sure you got all the bits when you tell it. So this would require a bit more effort yeah. to, to learn it to, before you could tell it properly. Yeah. And being pretty clear on why you were telling it, which is what we're going to talk about in a moment. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's do that. Let's jump into that. What would be the, some of the points that we would draw from this story? I mean, well, me, go, Mark. Yeah, you go first. Oh, I guess uh, it's easy to get focused on the commercial opportunity and, uh, and forget, you know, forget the, uh, the very important thing, which is quality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, in this case, they sacrifice quality. And they don't even give it much thought. I think they don't even think about it. It was just a, it was just like we're producing all these games, you know, we're knocking them out. No one, the executives didn't sort of go, hang, hang in there a minute. Doesn't it take us six to eight months to develop a game? I mean, yeah. how are we going to do it in five weeks? And, and like any thought of checking whether the game was going to be... Um, whether it was going to work, whether people were going to like it or not. It was well, just, one, you're we produce it. That's right. Where's the testing in all this, yeah. right? Like, it's like the field of dreams approach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If we build it. I'll just come along. So there's something around testing. But I think there's another element here, which is, which is the developer, Howard, just having such, such confidence in himself that he just, he just says, yeah, I can do it. No problems. Yeah. Yes. Kind of the dangers of overconfidence. Now, the funny thing is, of course, in back in those days, it's pretty amazing that a game, one of these arcade, or not arcade games, but you know, an Atari game could be developed by one person. Oh, which is, which is pretty remarkable considering these days that, you know, a game costs somewhere between, you know, 50 and $150 million to make. And there's, you know, swarms of people involved in putting it all together um so it's it's a totally different uh, situation these days but okay back then it was almost like the dark ages of of game making so yeah. quality is one of the points what else i mean i think the point with um you know you don't want to be overconfident that might be a point that you draw from this uh, understand that understanding risk so there is no attempt to, well, it appears at face value that they, they, they didn't consider the downside. It was full steam ahead, damn the torpedoes, off we go. Yeah, I know. It's interesting too that for a company that was doing so well, it was obviously still precarious that essentially, I'm sure there's other things involved we don't know about, but, you know, how a game can precipitate the the a company, you know, going belly up. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, it's, isn't it? And an industry yeah. going belly up. And an industry. Yeah. That was, for me, was an interesting thing that, that the whole industry stopped and there were no games produced for, for a number of years. And I think part of it was the fact that Atari counted for 75% of the industry in the US. I mean, I'm sure the industry was, you know, still starting to mature in, in Japan, for example, but in the US, the industry died. Um, and took quite a while before it started to, to come back again. So, 
Yeah, so it, so it was a massive impact. And I think part of that story too is the fact that Atari actually licensed other gamers, not other gamers, but other game companies to develop products for them. And they didn't really manage the quality of those either. And I believe what happened was you started to get a bunch of games that looked and feel quite similar. And, yep. and so people started to get bored of an Atari game. And so these things sort of coalesced in that point in time when this game failed. So it wasn't just this game failing, but there was these other broader forces at play that all culminated at that point and just smashed that company. Yeah. Yeah. Things were getting, they, they, the, the games were getting better and better and better and people's expectations, the, the users' expectations were getting higher and higher and higher. And then suddenly there's a reversal and it just, yeah, yeah I think that, that was, was it. too much for them. So, uh, any other places we would uh, tell this story? Oh, don't put all your eggs in one basket, I think is another thing. You know, just uh, giving everything off to the, this Warshaw character and saying, it's all on your shoulders, mate. And uh, <laughs> yeah, sure, he delivered, but he delivered something that was rubbish. Yeah, it was rubbish, yeah. Yes, they say it, that it's sort of, people refer to it as the worst game ever made. I'm hard oh. to believe. It's hard for me to believe that, but it's that's that's certainly maybe in terms of what impact it had of uh, on a company and the industry. But yeah, it was a bit. Oh was, yeah, I'm like in, like in, in in impact terms, I can understand that. But wow, that's 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 not the epitaph that you <laughs> produce of the worst game ever made. Yeah, exactly. Um, what about a story rating? Let's let's give it a rating. Mark, what do you think? Well, so I'm I'm going to give this a six, and the reason is because I just it's there's too many a lot of moving parts. It would take a lot of work for me to learn this story. Um, I'm glad I know the story. I'm just not sure I could. I'd need to do a lot of work to use it. Right. Yeah. No, I'd, um, for me, I'm going to give it an eight. I would use this story. For me, it reminds me of the city court building story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you had to bring that one up, didn't you? That's yeah. it. Exactly. It's a complex story, but if you can nail it, that's a, that's a cool story to be able to tell. I would say you would tell it more in a big presentation than you would yeah. just in a meeting, right? Because to get the permission to you know, the sort of tacit permission of an audience to tell it. When you're up in, on the stage, you can do whatever you like. You can tell a, you know, six-minute, ten-minute story if you want, but you're not going to get that when you're, you know, cut and thrust in a, in a sort of a customer meeting or something like that where you can only tell, you know, 60-second, 90-second type stories, which this is not one of those. No, no. Right? So, so for those big presentations, yeah, and you could have some imagery of what it looked like. Oh, right? yeah. So, yeah, that's right. You could use all those things to help you out. Yeah. So, I and think for anybody who's in the in the gaming industry uh, who are doing well, uh, this is a very useful story, folks. Let us, you know, and I probably already use it. Let's not do an ET. Yeah, let's not do an ET around here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, the so you know when I was I was saying that I was doing that work with EA, and yeah, they all know that story. It's like as, oh, soon, right. as, you, as right. soon as you mention the Atari ET story, they're all looking at you going, "Yep, yep." We know that one. Yeah. So, 
It's, I imagine they involve uh, they involve end users a lot earlier in their in their game development these days. Oh, it's a totally different environment these days. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's all we got for this story. Anything else we want to add before we sign off? No, <laughs> nothing else this week. Okay. For once, Thirsty For once, that's good. Well, thanks everyone for listening to Anecdotally Speaking, and yeah, tune in next week for another episode of How to Put Your Stories to Work. Bye for now. Anecdotally Speaking was engineered by Dave Stokes from author to audio.